everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning. Uh, before we get too far into the sermon part of today, there were a couple kind of family room, kitchen table type discussions I, I just wanted to make us aware of. Um, the first is our finances. If you've been coming to church at Discovery here for a little while, you might remember that back in February, we hosted an event after second service called Floats and Finances. And if you're a financially minded person or if that interests you, that's on our um, YouTube channel. You can find that through our website if you want to see that if you missed it. But Really, we, we were coming into a time as a church where we were looking at our finances going, we're post-COVID, I mean, we've gone through this pastor transition, so many things are shifting. We don't know how much money we're, we're our income is, and if we don't know what our income is, we don't know how to plan moving forward. And so one of the big updates at that meeting was, we're going to take through May to try and establish a baseline, was our language. And so here we are in May, and just wanted to let you know, I'd love to put on your calendar, if this is a conversation that interests you, which I hope that it does, that on Sunday, June 26th, we'll be hosting a second Floats and Finances, and that will just be a time for us to update you on some things that are going on. Know that leading up to that time, you'll get some little snippets from me, um, just some quick updates. But as we go there, um, just want to make sure that was in your calendar. The second thing is a quick update on our youth ministry. As someone who's been involved personally in the world of teenagers for the last several years, I would tell you that the last few have been the hardest in recent history by far. Last May, Children's Hospital declared a statewide state of emergency because they were so overrun with kids needing help. Youth pastors don't have the same infrastructure to call states of emergency, but needless to say, it's been really tough. Uh, Emily made an announcement at youth group last Sunday, and we wanted to give parents and kids a week to sit with the information before we made the announcement to the whole church. But she is needing a season of rest and rejuvenation. It's been really well earned. And she's choosing right now to step down from leadership of the youth ministry, and she'll make that move starting in about mid-July. Uh, she's not planning to leave Discovery. She will continue to stay here as a member. There is no ill will or anything nefarious that's gone on here. But I would tell you this. She stood in the gap for so many kids and has loved them so well. This role has asked a lot of her, and she has given a lot. She'll pick up her master's degree again back down at Denver Seminary in the fall. And since we have a little bit of time before she formally steps down, we'll celebrate her once we get a little bit closer to that date. Just want you to know we, we value that transparency and wanted you to know. Feel free to ask questions if you see her or if you want to pull me aside. Uh, I will speak on her behalf and let you know that she is accepting hugs and words of encouragement. If you know Emily, you know I'm not kidding. Um, but please, I would also invite you be praying for her, be praying for our youth ministry, and be praying for our staff as we begin a search for our next youth director. Um, Third, I didn't have this in my notes, but I just want to address, we have some moths that are in the building. <laughs> we have a bet going backstage that every time you get hit in the head with one, everybody has to give you 20 bucks. And so if, if one hits me, you can just cheer right along. Um, third, it's been a rough few weeks in the world. Uh, I really appreciate how Jimmy chose to start out this morning. But between Ukraine and Russia, between Buffalo and Uvalde between the Southern Baptist Convention, if you're aware of that news. It's just been a grind. And you may be coming in pretty, pretty bedraggled, pretty tired and exhausted and sad and grieving. 
And I think if you're like me, there's, there's just those moments where you go, not again. Like the last few years, like the Lord have mercy. It has been so much without much relief. Uh, I ran across through a, a friend, a quote from Karl Barth, um, and he said this, to clasp one hand, one's hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. We need a church that is seeking God, not worldly solutions or finger pointing. God makes it very clear that he's the one who will set all things right in the end. And if we're going to be a part of that, it will take us looking to him and doing things his way. Prayer is not just a giving up and rolling over kind of an exercise. Prayer begins with you remembering who is wise and who knows what to do, and then aligns you under that person to do the things the way that they do it. So, for those that continue to pray, clasp your hands. Let's pray right now before we jump into the sermon. Jesus, I'm glad you don't just ask us to sit idly by, but I'm glad that you're the type of savior, the type of God, the the type of person that would construct a human heart in a way to go, I am asking something of you in these situations. And I'm so glad that the things I'm asked to do are not to manufacture stuff. I'm not supposed to have the solutions on my own. I'm so glad that the thing that you asked me to do is to seek you first. And so as we go through the rest of our morning together, as we go through the weeks that are to come, I pray for myself and for my friends, for a warrior spirit to go, where do you want me to go and what do you want me to do? Especially how how do you want me to do this? Because the world is in disorder and I want to be a part of an uprising against it. I want to stand in line with thousands of years of church history and more than thousands of years of theological history of people who are saying we will stand against evil and we will choose to do what is good and right at the cost of ourselves. Help us to live with a sacrificial love that reflects who you are. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, Okay. We'll get into our message for the day. Um, do you remember um, field trips as a kid? You're going to need to remember some field trips today if you're going to really get this message, if you're going to understand what Jesus is up to in our text out of the book of Matthew today. I, there were a couple field trips I could remember as a kid. I fell into a lake once um, when I was in preschool. I got my pants all wet. It was awesome. I had to explain that I didn't wet myself. Does the lake did it. Um, it's real. People bought it. Um, but my, my favorite field trip story was actually a more recent one. When my oldest son, Brogan, was in first grade, they were looking for chaperones to take the first graders to, uh, to the zoo. And I love the zoo. I had a day that I could for sure take the time off. So I show up at their school. I get my group of four kids. It's awesome. Two little girls, Brogan and then his friend, Gerardo. And we get on the bus and the whole ride down, we're sitting, you know, all of our seats right next to each other and I'm gonna know them. They're like, the, they're first graders. If you haven't hung out with a first grader in a while, you're missing out. The, the, the little girls are like giggling and telling me about they just had a birthday party and all the things that they got. I'm a boy dad, we have three boys. I don't know what girl toys are. So the whole time I was like, God, that sounds awesome. No idea what you're talking about. We get to the zoo and I, I'm, a, I'm a dad, you know, like I'm, I'm excited about what we're gonna do, but I know at the zoo, if you, if you like, if you know what you're doing at the zoo, you gotta look at the schedule and you gotta know when are, when are they doing a, a presentation or when's something special gonna happen. And so I sneak, I sneak a glance over for a second at the schedule and I see the elephants 
at 11.15, there's, a, there's an elephant demonstration. So I turn to the kids and I go, hey, you guys, I have a huge, huge surprise for you today. I'm not gonna tell you what it is now. I'll tell you when we get there. This is gonna be awesome. So you go around the zoo, and if you've been to the Denver Zoo, you got the, if you go left, you can get to the giraffes, and then you see the polar bears, and you kind of make your way around. But I'm watching my clock the whole time going, 11.15, big surprise at the elephants. So we, we get to about 11 o'clock. We're not quite there. So I'm like, you guys, we're going to come right back to the spot. We've got to get over to where these elephants are. And um, we get there. We got, about, we got about five, 10 minutes to spare. We sit down, and Gerardo is sitting next to me, and he goes, is this a surprise, Mr. Zach? And I said, oh, buddy. You have no idea. Yes, this is the surprise. And all morning, all four of these kids are like, when's the surprise coming? And so now they're all on just high alert, you know, like, when's it, when's it going to happen? This elephant, biggest elephant that they have at the Denver Zoo, walks out. I mean, it was like, it was like Hollywood, like, like the Lion King just happening right in front of us. Walks out of this water. It's like dripping. It's awesome. It's got the tusks. It comes right out. And the new place that they have down there, there's, this, there's like this stage. And this guy just knows exactly what he's doing. And he just like, so awesome. And I'm walking out on stage. And then he turns around to present, look at this. And then he turns around and Gerardo looks at me and he goes, is this the surprise? And the elephant turns all the way around. Now, I don't mean to be crass. He goes number one and number two simultaneously. And the girls are screaming. Brogan is laughing, and Gerardo turns to me and he goes, How did you know? <laughs> you learn a lot on field trips. I'd never seen an elephant go pee before. I know what it looks like now because I went on a field trip. <laughs> Did you go to the zoo or to the museum or to the state capitol? Do you remember some of those trips? I think for all of us, it engages this part of our brain that, frankly, it just sits pretty dormant if we're just stuck in front of a chalkboard or a whiteboard. We were designed to learn through experience. I love when my kids say, we've got, we don't have school today, we have a field trip. I'm like, man, you just hook, line, and sinker. You're getting educated today. It's just you're not in class. It's good education. It's a good educator that will say, I'm going to take you on field trips. I want you to see it. I want you to be able to put your hands on it. I want you to have experiences to know the world around you. And this Jesus that we talk about is, I think, the best educator ever to have lived. And if that's true, I think we should find him not just standing in front of a chalkboard pointing at things to do and not to do, but that we would find him taking people on field trips. Today, we, we kind of take a turn in our text in the book of Matthew. We're going to be towards the end of chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 18. So if you brought your Bible, you can turn there and hold it for now. This is really the first time in the book of Matthew that we're getting just Jesus. I mean, so far, he shared the stage with a lot of people. Chapter 1, we had Joseph and Mary. Chapter 2, it was all about Herod and the wise man. Chapter 3 was John the Baptist. Chapter 4, Jesus was there, but he was wrestling with Satan the whole time. And now that we're getting to the end of chapter 4, Matthew, as a writer, is going, now, look right at the guy. Let's take some time. I want you to know who he is as a teacher. I want you to know who he is as a person. And if you're going to be able to understand him, you have to know how education works in this time in the world. The Jewish educational system is a hoot. I mean, this, I, I didn't know this till a few years ago. This blew my mind that there were kind of three stages of Jewish education. 
Uh, for about elementary school age kids, to they're about 10-ish, uh, 10-ish, 12-ish, they had something called Bet Sefer. And you'd go to the local synagogue, you'd go to the local church, one of the folks would be there to teach you, and your core curriculum would be just the first five books of the Bible. And for a lot of these kids, for every kid, they, could, they would memorize and could just speak to you whole chunks of the first five books of the Bible. Many of them would have the whole thing memorized by 10 or 12 years old. Can you imagine that? Like being put to shame by a 10-year-old kid because they, they, they know their text. Holy smokes, that's amazing. Uh, that was their core. It would be boys and girls that would go to this. They would be learning to read and write as they're going along. And for a lot of kids, their education, I mean, for sure by the time they were 13, bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah, um, you're now fully a, a spiritual adult in this culture. And so for a lot of kids, you're for sure done with bet sefer right around that time. But if you showed some extra promise and for sure you had to have some extra passion, you could go on to what's next in education. You could go on to Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud uh, is translated house of learning, and this would be a place where they would teach you how to ask good questions. Don't you like that? I like that a lot. I'm, I found myself yesterday telling my son something and saying, okay, now repeat it back to me. Here's the answer. Let me make sure you know the answer. You just learn so much better when you're asking questions and when you teach somebody to be curious. It's just often not how we do education. They would spend this whole time, this was so much a part of what they were trying to do in this particular school of Bet Talmud. We want you to learn to ask questions, which makes a lot of sense when you're going, we're reading the books of Psalms and Proverbs and the prophets. I mean, you're gonna have a lot of questions reading books like that. It makes a ton of sense. This for us today would kind of be like high school and your undergraduate combined. Like, it's that level of intensity. It's also that level of, like, there's some upward mobility that comes with this. That one was coming from my head. I'm telling you, I'm coming out ahead this week. Um, and when you were finished, a lot of people were done at this point. But you had to have some major chutzpah if you were going to go on to the third level of education. I mean, it was very few that even chose to make the steps to apply. I mean, this is like, this is PhD type of thinking. Just because you apply doesn't mean you get in. Just because you get in doesn't mean you don't wash out. It's called Bet Midrash. It stands for the House of Study. And here's how this would go. You would do your research and you'd learn about every rabbi, every teacher. Picture this as like itinerant walking professors that were just, they were around. You would find the rabbi that you, said, you would say, I, I want to be just like them when I grow up. And, and when you found him, you would go to him and you say, I, I, can I follow you? May I follow you? Oftentimes, this would then lead to them, I mean, it was a huge interview, rake you over the coals, how much of the, of the first five books do you have memorized? How much of the rest of the Old Testament do you have memorized? What's your theology? How do you think about these things? Here's some questions. Will you answer my questions with questions or do you only have answers? It was amazing. This is just the interview. Oftentimes, if you pass that first stage of the interview, this rabbi would follow you around for like days, would just watch you. How do you live? And, and really, when, when you are researching and looking at what, what were they trying to figure out this whole time, what they're trying to figure out as a rabbi looking at a potential student is, is this somebody that I think could someday be like me? And if you made the cut, there would be a day that they would come up to you and say, you may follow me. And then you would spend the rest of your life following this person around. Your, your hope was not just to learn what they knew, not just to get the information, you wanted to be like them. 
there's stories of these older rabbis that, I mean, they were getting old and they started to walk with a limp and they would be walking through town and they'd have like 10, 20 something guys walking behind them all with the same exact limp. Let that sit for a second. I want to be just like my rabbi. That is my singular passion. I, I, I know the text, I know the things, I've sat in class, but I want to be just like my rabbi. It's, it's amazing. And they loved field trips. These rabbis, all of them, kind of had this style, which I want to start tuning you into as we're going to hit this next section in Matthew, where they wouldn't just teach. It wouldn't just be the classroom, but there'd be a cadence to this. I'm going to teach you a lesson, but then we're going to leave the classroom and we're going to go do it. We're going to go look at the elephants. We're not just going to talk about them because I need you to understand what elephants do. And they do a lot, you guys. are just bringing it back. He wants you to understand how, you, how you're going to live it out someday. Because someday, every rabbi, if you made it through the program, would someday turn to his students and he'd say, go, make your own disciples. I'm done. You've learned everything that you need from me. You've become like me. Now go make your own. Let that sit for a minute. As a spoiler alert, if you don't know this part of the story, one of the last things that Jesus will say in the book of Matthew to the folks that have been following him is go and make disciples. We're done. I'm, I'm done teaching you in this, in this type of relationship. It doesn't mean you're done learning from me but you've reached the point where it's your turn to now go and make your own disciples. Paul will then pick up this train and go follow me as I follow Jesus. It's not, okay, everybody, now come be like me. The whole time, we're trying to get them back to Rabbi Jesus. That's the background that you need to understand that's going into our story today. So, uh, as promised, Matthew 4, we're gonna start in verse 18 and just read through about the first half of verse 23. But it goes like this. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, this is Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's now called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee. They were mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Okay, so now you've got this background to know a rabbi comes through town. But this role reversal is really strange because if the system is right, these guys should be chasing Jesus down going, can I be like you? And instead we see Jesus saying, hey, come follow me. Like Jesus is bypassing the whole application process and going, I'm handpicking the folks that I think can be like me someday. And we don't have time to get into this today, but even looking at the geography, everything's messed up in this story. I mean, this theme of illegitimate that runs through Matthew's gospel is phenomenal. Because if you're a rabbi looking for really sharp students because you want to change the world, you go to Jerusalem. You go to the center of the religious activity of the culture. And Jesus is as far away as you can get. If you go to the verses that lead up to this section, you'll see Jesus is moving further and further and further away. And then he's reaching out to these guys who are fishermen. I mean, these are ordinary people. We'll, we'll even catch up in the book of Acts. In Acts 4.13, it says, it says this. This is, this is now further in the story. 
Peter, Jesus has ascended to heaven. Peter is now leading the church. I'm going to give you a little bit more context in just a little bit, but the religious leaders at the time are looking at Peter, and, and it says this, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, these two kids who we just met in this story, and, they, and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed. You've been with a rabbi. You're doing some cool stuff, but you're normal. Weird. There wasn't a context or a category for that. One other thing about these guys is, and there's some debate about this, but they, they for sure all would have been, all of these disciples that Jesus is going to meet have been through Beth Sefer. They, they've been through the first five books of the Bible. They've memorized these huge chunks. So when Jesus is going to be pulling in Old Testament references in the future teaching of what he's going to be doing, a lot of these guys are sitting there the whole time going, uh-huh, got it, got it, got it. And we're having to go, wait, where did he pull that from? What does that mean? What was the story in the con- They just know. But the debate really falls around how old are they? Are these grown men? Are these boys? Are they teenagers? And I think I feel pretty safe in, in sharing with you. I think it's just good to locate a median age at about 18. So if you can picture a bunch of newly graduated seniors in high school, maybe you've seen some of them recently at a party, that's the age of a guy, of a person, on average, that Jesus is saying, I think you could be like me someday. Come follow me. And of course, for these kids, I mean, likely they tried to apply to these schools, but they didn't make the cut. And everything about this invitation to them is, this is as good as it gets. If a rabbi wants me to come follow him, of course I'm leaving my nets with my family's blessing. I'm going to go learn. That's, that's the scene, if you can start to see it. It seems like the first thing that he's going to teach them is the same thing that John the Baptist had been preaching. If you were here last week, Steve left off by saying that John the Baptist got arrested, Jesus moved up to Capernaum, and he started preaching this really short sermon and went like this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Go in the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next Sunday. I mean, it was that. Some of you are like, I wish this sermon was going to be about that short. But he, he grabs these four kids. He says, come follow me. They drop their nets. They drop their dad. And they start following him around. And the first thing, and remember, there's a cadence to this. He's going to teach something, and then he's going to do it. The first thing that he says is this wacky sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now what does he do? Because in this part of the story, I, I wanted so bad to get into the Sermon on the Mount. That's the next part. It's this long sermon that Matthew compiles for Jesus. I, want, I thought we would be there today. This is just too good. Like this part that we're looking at right now, it's too good to miss because you get it all in a little capsule. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The next thing we should see Jesus doing is living out. What does that mean? Because that's, I don't know about you. I hear that and I'm like, that's a weird sermon, man. What's that even supposed to mean? What am I supposed to do with that? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I don't know. And, and if we're watching a rabbi who's a masterful rabbi do his work, the next verse is revealed to us. Go live it out and show us what it looks like. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, people who are demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he, cured, and, 
and he cured them. This is a funny, I was talking with my friend Mitch, um, who's brilliant in Greek, and he just pointed out to me, it's like, they're, it's like they're setting up this list of like, this is the MVP team of the enemy. Like, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and then Jesus just steps in, and all it says is, and he cured them. Like, it, it, they can't hold a candle. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Did you catch it? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent is kind of this loaded word. If you're in a life group, I, I'm excited for you to wrestle with this a little bit this week. What does repent actually mean? I think a very simple version of that can simply mean that Jesus is saying, come home. You belong in God's house. You belong with God as your dad. Come home, for his kingdom is near. The society, the way he wants people to live, it's, it's so close. You can reach out and touch it. Come home, because the society is close. What does it look like? In this society, if you were going to announce the coming of a new kingdom, it was unilaterally with bloodshed. You would come in, might would be right, and with Jesus' kingdom, he comes with healing. Anything broken, anything sick, anything that needs fixing, Jesus says, come to me and my kingdom will dawn, not with the shedding of blood as a show of power, but with the making of things right as a show of a power like you've never seen. And it's not just disease. And we'll talk about this as we get to more of these. There's more special vignettes that we'll see in several weeks from now. But it's not just disease that he's healing. He's healing outcasts being pushed out from society and he's bringing them in. He's healing people whose families have been ripped apart by sickness or by trauma and he's bringing them back in. You just see over and over again, Jesus going, this is what God's kingdom looks like. We're putting it all back together. So come home because this is what's happening and you don't want to miss it. The other thing here is that it's in these people that he's healing, they're, they're illegitimate, but Jesus is making them legitimate. It's, it's hard to track all the geography that's going on in just this last little chunk that we read, but here's the places that just came up. Syria. You know who lives in Syria? Not a lot of Jewish people. There's some there, but that is Greek. That is a Roman town. That's run and owned by the enemy of the Jews. Uh, we've got the Decapolis in there. You know who lives in the Decapolis? There's some Jews, but that is owned and operated by the enemy, by the Romans. Do you know where people are coming from? Jerusalem and Judea. We would expect them to be invited to the party. But people are coming from the Decapolis. He's getting famous all over Syria. That's illegitimate. They don't belong in this story. And Jesus is going, but look at the kingdom. It's just, you can touch it. Don't miss out on it. Come home. You have to keep in mind that these four 18-year-old boys are following Jesus around because they want to become like him. That's their whole mission. And one day, they're realizing as they're watching him heal like demon possession type stuff and preaching to crowds of people, they're going, we're, we're supposed to become like this. We're supposed to do what he's doing. I've got to think that there were moments where they're like, I got to go. I, I can't do that. I will never be able to do that. And to their great credit, I mean, I don't know if there were guys who dropped out or ladies, but these dudes stuck. You have to imagine that their eyes were bulging. 
you have to imagine that they were feeling illegitimate, but they were being made legitimate. Acts 4.13, that verse that we hit earlier where the, these, the religious leaders are going, you're just ordinary guys, it's amazing. That, that verse comes in context of these couple things happening. Peter had been walking around in Jerusalem in the center of things, and, he, and there was this crippled man, and he healed, he touched him, and he healed a crippled man. And immediately after that, he turns to a crowd of people and he preaches this sermon that's pretty wacky, but if I, can, if I can distill it down for you, it sounds a lot like this. Come home, because the kingdom of heaven, you can reach out and touch it. Does that sound familiar? And, and right after, he heals this cripple and speaks this familiar sermon. Then he comes up to these religious elite. Now, here's the whole verse of Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. This is, this is rabbi school at its finest. What you're doing and how you're doing it, it reminds me of someone I've seen him in action before. You look like this Jesus character. Ah, oh, I, I just, I, I've got to think they're a little bit older now that John and Peter are looking at each other going, do you remember the first time we watched Jesus do all this stuff? And we're like, this guy's crazy. My journal today looks like the pages that I was writing and I was watching Jesus do it. And now we're doing it. This is amazing. And the story gets more and crazy, and it's phenomenal. What does this mean for us today? Matthew is inviting his reader to consider this rabbi. His first group of readers would have likely been a bunch of Jewish people who'd heard of Jesus. Many of them were trying to follow Jesus, but as they're watching just this little chunk of verses, they're going, oh, I see what's going on here. Jesus is building his little rabbi school. And he's taking them on field trip and he's showing them what he wants them to be like someday. And as an original reader, I think they're starting to go, shoot. If I choose to go to rabbi school with Jesus, this is the type of stuff that I'm being signed up for. This is the type of stuff that I'm signing up for. I feel pretty illegitimate. And I hope that that's comforting because for me today as a reader and for you today as a reader, the same invitation is coming to us from Matthew. This is what your rabbi does. Do you have the guts to follow him? Do you have the audacity to believe that it's not just Jesus does everything, but he's trying to make in you a disciple, somebody who's fully formed, somebody who one day when he is done with the training, and this is not when you die, this is in your life, that he says, go, you've learned enough, go make your own disciples and let them follow you as you follow me. Mm, gosh, it's so, it's so important because the world needs full disciples of Jesus not just half-baked ones who are used to sitting in the classroom and getting bored, staring at the chalkboard and the whiteboard, and when it's time for a field trip, they stay with their butts glued to their seats. But people who will say, Jesus, if you go to the lost, if you go to the illegitimate, if you preach, if you share faith with people, if you talk about God, I will go with you because if you limp, I limp, and if you preach, I preach, and if you're good, I will do my best, and God help me when I'm not. Oh, so this is what he's doing in these verses. Do you choose to follow him? I heard a, um, gosh, I love this. 
I heard an interview this week um, in the wake of the Evalde shootings uh, with Frank DeAngelis, who was the principal at Columbine High School. Uh, I was a sophomore when Columbine happened at Broomfield High. Um, it was at a track meet at Inglewood High School. They canceled the meet. We were stuck on the bus for hours. We didn't know what was going on. And it was scary. This interview, Frank DeAngelis, now, anytime there's a school shooting, is kind of one of the go-to, like, what do we do, Frank? And it was a, kind of a spicy interview by the end. But the interview, like, they'd been talking a while about gun control and all these different things, and they get to the end, and you can tell, like, the interviewer is going, you're holding out. Like, let me just ask a general enough question that I can try and get to the heart of what you really think about this. And he says this, the interviewer. What are we missing in the psychology of these things with these kids that want to go out and do harm? Frank says this. Well, that's the thing. You know, to me, there were teachers and coaches and principals a lot smarter than me. But as far as caring for kids, that was one of my top priorities. And it's all about relationships and being able to find out, to reach out to these kids who are struggling and providing help for them. You know, one of those things that people always ask me is, what are you going to do? And I say, what am I going to do? What are we going to do? We need to come together. They're all our kids. Texas, Colorado, Connecticut, they're all our kids. <laughs> Jesus was filling stadiums full of people. Thousands of people were coming from all over the region to come see him. But the thing that he did was he grabbed some 18-year-olds and he said, you're really what I'm trying to do here. These people, what we're doing with the crowds, these are the field trips that I'm taking you on. But this message, this kingdom, this sermon will continue through you. It was relational at its core. We can set up policy. We can create more programs for the masses. Those things might be good, but that's not where our rabbi stopped. We can do good for some strangers, but that's not where our rabbi stopped. A rabbi fundamentally takes people, individuals, and he says, I think you could be like me someday. Follow me, and I'll teach you. A rabbi fundamentally takes people, ordinary people, and he turns them into people that reflect him, and then he sends them out. This is the most inefficient process ever. It takes years. This is the most effective process ever. And thousands of years later, we're going, how do we help kids? How do we continue this message of come home? We're trying to put it back together. How do we do it? And Frank DeAngelis is speaking the language of a rabbi. He's saying, you got to know kids. You got to love kids. You got to spend time with kids. But I think Jesus would, would say, that's not enough. The kingdom message wasn't just go hang out with people and be relational. The kingdom message was come learn to live life like Jesus. And the message to the disciples was go make your own disciples. Let them follow you as you follow me. If you are a follower of Jesus, have you become like your rabbi? If not yet, that's okay. But do you know that this is part of the goal in you? The Christian life is not a line in the sand where once I wasn't saved, but now I'm saved, and now I'm just waiting for heaven to come. You've got a job to do. And the world is dying for fully formed disciples. Do you know that that's the goal of what we're trying to be about? 
don't forget, if you haven't been sent yet, Jesus doesn't find these four kids, tell them a couple things, and then send them out. We're in chapter four. We're going to get to chapter 28. There are years of experiences and field trips that he's going to be taking them on. If you don't know this Jesus, the invitation unequivocally is come, follow him. Learn to live as he lives. My concern is that in Christianity and in the church today, it is easy to become a lifelong student who doesn't leave the classroom. And if that's you, I hope that whether it's Frank or whether it's Jesus or whether it's your little old preacher, that you're hearing folks say, you got to go find people and you got to go love people. Grab a teenager. You can get ready to join this next iteration of our youth ministry. You can volunteer with Youth for Christ Juvenile Justice with Gareth, who's one of our local partners. You can volunteer with Young Life. They're going into local high schools and middle schools. There's another one. But grab a teenager. And if, if that feels like too much, maybe we're not all called to be with teenagers, but who are the people that you're saying, come follow me, I want you to follow me so that someday you can go find a teenager? Some of you need to hear today, don't go find a teenager, go volunteer downstairs and hang out with some first graders because they're awesome. And every year when we have Move Up Sunday, it is your Move Up Sunday. And you start with kids when they're six and you graduate them from high school. That's relational rabbi ministry. That starts to reflect this Jesus. And the whole time you're saying, kiddos, come home. The kingdom is being put back together. You can reach out and touch it. And I want you to continue this legacy that's been passed down. All right, I'm going to bring out the band. I'm going to start landing the plane on myself for the day. They recognized them as companions of Jesus. The way that they lived, the way that they talked, the way that they healed people, it looked just like him. Jesus was all over these guys. The story comes immediately after Peter is doing the same things his rabbi was doing. These next four weeks, we're gonna get to sit under this rabbi as Matthew compiles a whole bunch of the highlight reels of the sermons that Jesus gives. And then we're gonna watch after we get through those four weeks of looking at the sermon, the stories that immediately follow. Jesus is a great rabbi. He's going, here's the sermon, but Matthew's going now, here's what it actually looks like. And I think as a fun invitation, I didn't, know you, I didn't know this was a thing until a few years ago, but there's a style of spiritual, uh, spiritual discipline where you write the text. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but you would open your Bible. This would take about 45, 30 to 45 minutes to do with the Sermon on the Mount. We'd open your Bible, you'd have a sheet of paper, maybe a journal, maybe just a blank sheet, and you're literally word for word going, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's a way of memorizing the text, of letting it get into you. And I'm putting you on notice that for four weeks, this is our text. And if you, I mean, if you're like, spiritually, I need something more than what I've been doing. I don't know how to put it on more of a silver platter than this. Write the text. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. If you do it once a week, you will have written it four times. And I guarantee you just, it will, it will change the way that you see this Jesus. 
not just in your head, it won't just be a classroom type of thing, but you're gonna feel a tingling in your fingers that you need to follow this rabbi on a field trip. It's, it's so good. So you're invited to that. But I hope if there's anything that you've heard today, it's that in this whole rabbi thing, he doesn't just want you to know stuff and sit there. He wants to teach you to be like him for the rest of your life. And that means going on field trips with him and then taking people on field trips with you. God bless you, Discovery. Follow this rabbi. He is so good. For all the grief, for all the things that are happening in the world around us, I love how Jimmy started the day. Let's recognize it. Let's see it. And with warrior hearts that follow a radical rabbi, let's stand and sing and worship this God together.